0: Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Monday, July the twenty-eighth, and today is World Hepatitis Day. Deliberately, the Lancet is publishing online today three research articles concerning hepatitis. But unusually, we're going to focus this time on hepatitis E, which is the least well-known, certainly the least common form of hepatitis. I hope I'm correct in saying. If not, my guest interviewer will correct me. Welcome, Professor Richard Tedder. Can I ask you to give me your full title and uh, academic affiliation, please? Good
1: morning. Richard. I'm Professor Richard Seaton Tedder. I'm a faculty member at University College London, but I'm working with Public Health England at Collindale and also with the National Blood Transfusion Service at Collindale.
0: Well, thank you very much, Professor Tedder, for joining us. As I say, Hepatitis, World Hepatitis Day, but not a lot discussed about Hepatitis E. It was only discovered in 1978, looking at the introduction of your paper, but not much is known about it, and that was actually part of the point of of your research article. Tell us what your article was uh, setting out to achieve.
1: Well, as you say, in fact, it is probably the most common cause of the rare transmissible through food cause of acute jaundice, acute viral hepatitis. It's more common now than hepatitis A. So this is, I think, what has made us focus on hepatitis E. We've seen in the last five years through colleagues Uh, collecting data in Public Health England that the cases of acute hepatitis E jaundice have been rising. And uh, last year we had just under 500 cases of acute jaundice through hepatitis E of of the type of virus that we've looked at in blood donors. So the numbers have gone up and we wanted to try and find out why this was and whether it had any consequences for public health practice in England as a whole. And this is why we then, knowing that viruses like this, if they're present in donors, even even acutely infected donor, can be transmitted into recipients. And this is what the study set out to do. It is interestingly the first global prospective study of hepatitis C transmission by blood. We screened just under a quarter of a million donors. We identified uh, infected donors and because of the length of time it took us to identify the donors, because this was a research project, not a screening project, we tried to bring back as many of the blood components that we knew had come from the infected donors. We couldn't bring them all back and where they were transmitted into patients we then had to support the patients and determine whether they
0: had become infected or
1: not. And as you can see in the paper, infection did occur.
0: Sure. And in terms of the numbers, the number of people infected with hepatitis E through transfusion was just under 1 in 3,000, is that correct?
1: No. Start the figures again. Yes, 1 in 3,000 blood donors are at any point in time acutely infected with the hepatitis E virus, usually with absolutely no symptoms at all, but they've got the virus in the blood. In the study period, we identified 79 donors in that category, and we followed their components of their blood into recipients, and we found about 40% of people became infected with the virus, receiving it from their blood transfusion component.
0: And what does that mean clinically? How did those recipients fare?
1: It's interesting that if we consider what damage is done in the acute, in the acute period of somebody receiving. Blood or blood component, um, and I t- when i 'm talking about blood component, blood of course is not used as a as a whole material to transfuse nowadays; we fractionate it into white cells, red into cells. platelets, yeah. red cells, and yeah. so on. so any component from an infected donor will carry virus into the recipient. When we looked in the recipients, we found very little evidence of acute hepatitis arising from the transfusion now. This is interesting because one of the reasons that we went into this study as a whole is that we have had over the last five years, very, very rare occasions when investigating somebody who's gone yellow after transfusion, we found that that was actually due to hepatitis E virus infection. There were 62 patients who we identified to have been transfused with a blood component coming from an infected donor. At the end of the day, we were only able to follow up 43 of those because there were other reasons, either it was inappropriate or they'd gone abroad or they didn't want to be involved. We were only able to follow up 43, and in those, we found that about 40% were infected. That gave us overall a number of 18 infections in recipients, and only one of those developed mild jaundice. Sufficient to take him to the general practitioner. General practitioners saw the patient, and the patient was then told that yes, they had acute hepatitis E. I'm not sure, without prompting from us speaking to the GP, that they would have necessarily looked for hepatitis E. It would have just been transient hepatitis. So that was the only disease that we see acutely in the recipient.
0: Some interesting and uh, new findings here. What? What do they mean in, in public health terms? There are implications for how we actually acquire hepatitis E, because it's a zoonotic infection, isn't it? So that there are implications for, for the food we eat and, and also for the way that we, mu- we might try and prevent a hepatitis E infection. Three things come out of this. Firstly,
1: that although we saw very little acute disease and infection, we did see patients who became persistently infected with the virus because they were heavily immunosuppressed as you might expect in people who are receiving blood components, they're receiving it for a reason. And quite a proportion of our patients received, received it because of uh, transplantation or other forms of immunosuppression. And they became, potentially, became persistently infected with hepatitis E, which is a bit of a problem because that can be associated with chronic liver disease. So that's the one issue. It's the fact that there are a proportion of recipients who are more at risk from long-term damage from this infection than the normal healthy person. The second issue is where's is it coming from? We think that this is dietary. If we reflect the prevalence of viremia in our blood donors across the population of the whole of England and Wales, we get a rather large number. It suggests that probably 100,000 more or less. Of individuals each year are acquiring this infection through diet that's quite a large number fortunately as I said at the beginning it only causes four to five hundred cases of jaundice a year out of the hundred thousand infections that there are so it's not a it's not a dangerous virus although in some people it can cause it can cause clinical problems from a public health point of view Why are we having such a high rate of transmission of a virus which is present in our food source? How is it getting into the uh, food chain and why are we not killing it with cooking? Well, that's an interesting issue. Uh, If you look on Saturday mornings, you see chefs saying, well, of course, we're going to let's cook some meat today. And of course, people like to have meat with a bit of a blush on it. And it's probably not so much the joint of pork which is the problem, but it's the processed pork meat which goes into prepared but not pre-cooked products like, for example, sausages. And we think that this is probably one of the more plausible routes that this virus is coming coming into the human population. And it just raises issues of we don't cook our food uh, maybe as, as well as we're used to 20 or 30 years ago.
0: The other implication, of course, is for public health is, I suppose, that and you do mention it in the paper, the need for a policy in terms of screening blood products for the transfusion process. That's got to be the next step, hasn't it?
1: To discuss the introduction of screening and blood transfusion, you've got to say, is this an important component of controlling the overall burden of hepatitis E in the human population. This then becomes an interesting discussion. And really, yes, we need to have a policy. We need policymakers to sit and look at the data and then decide, okay, how are we going to contain this hazard? Because there are other ways of mitigating this, There are ways of mitigating the disease, which is really The big problem is really going to be in the immunosuppressed recipient who becomes persistently infected and then can progress to chronic liver disease. This has been documented by colleagues in the south of France, and they have a strict policy of investigating people on a regular basis who are transplant recipients or immunosuppressed. So that's another way of mitigating the damage third way of mitigating the damage would be to cook your food better and you, you've got to take a broad view transfusion transmission of hepatitis c is only one
0: route one route, yeah. one
1: route the other route you know if, if you if you survive over five years with your transplant and you're immunosuppressed you are more likely probably to acquire your hepatitis C persistent infection through diet than through the blood components you might have been given during a transplant. We need a general policy for, for routine investigation of transplant patients. Perhaps everybody who may be somebody reading this in the podcast will today think, World well, Hepatitis Day, okay, what are we going to do about chronic hepatitis C in our transplant patients? Test them once a year. And if you find that they are persistently infected, then you know that you follow them. And if they don't clear spontaneously, then you may, have to, you may have to manipulate the virus or the host to get rid of the virus. How would you clear the virus in that situation if it wasn't clearing naturally? Well, what we have seen in the study is that most people eventually clear it spontaneously. We, we've had three or four out of the 16 infections where long-term persistence was likely. Three of those were terminated, uh, one by drugs using the drug ribavirin, and two uh, infections were terminated by the physicians looking after the patients, altering the immunosuppressive therapy for a bit, allowing the immune system to get clear. So really what you would do is you would identify people who are infected, and you would wait a certain length of time, and if they don't clear, you would then investigate whether you can change the immunosuppressive therapy for a little bit to try and release the immune system to get rid of the virus and or combine that with the antiviral drug ribavirin.
0: Professor Richard Tedder, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet on World Hepatitis Day, Monday, July the 28th. I'm glad to have the opportunity and it's
1: really auspicious and uh, tremendously valuable for the WHO on World Hepatitis Day to have the opportunity to invigorate the debate on the problems of hepatitis globally. I'm very glad to be given the opportunity to wave the flag for the WHO in that as well.